Well, this has been a, a, a great series that we have been walking through on um, close calls where we have been living out God's call in our close relationships. Um, I'm convinced that, that um, faith um, should make a difference, most of all, in the people that we end up getting closest to. That's where Jesus should be seen first and foremost in our lives. And so we've uh, started this journey and um, it's just been really neat to see Jen here. Jen and I, uh, the next gen pastor, has been tag teaming, tag teaming through this series, and uh, I'm just really excited as we uh, come to the close and we talk about um, the last one. We started with dating, went to marriage, talked about singleness, but now we want to end in friendship. So I want to say hello uh, to the Brentwood campus as we um, uh, come to the conclusion of this series. And also to everyone out there who watches this on YouTube, and uh, again, all I can say is um, if you like it, just hit like, and I just want to see if I can get more views than Jen. I'm, I'm losing tremendously to her, so she reminds me of that every week. Um, so let's talk about friendship. And if you have your outline or your smart device, I encourage you to look up on version and go to the live event, and uh, we have the outline there. Um, or you can look along the outline as we talk today about friendship. Someone once said this, the more I get to know people, the more I like my dog. <laughs> um, maybe that's your sentiment now as you have gone uh, you know, through life. But as we think about that, there's probably more truth to that as we think about how hard it is really to pursue deep and lasting friendships with people. You know, the data speaks for itself. You know, I find that, you know, when you're younger and you're in that sort of middle school and high school age, you're starting to see the importance of friendships and everybody wants to be your, is it still out of date now, say BFF, you know? Um, best friend forever, you know, buddy, buddy, and you meet someone at camp, and you promise you're gonna you're gonna write notes to each other, and or you're at a hockey camp, and you're buds, you know, you're on the same line, and or you, you you go out to an event and you meet someone and you're friends, and it just seems like when you're young, you're just like you know, you're just friends wherever you go, you get you make friends, you know, and you know there's tears and there's laughter and there's joy, and then you get going through life. And, and um, actually, if you um, are following the outline there, you, you start climbing what I call this dangerous ladder or what I call the, the liability ladder of friendships. And um, I want to start here what, what, what happens, first of all, as you start moving through life and where, where we start to see the risks of friendships. First of all, there's just drift, right? Um, and often what causes drift is often distance, right? You know, I, I had some great friends when I studied at seminary when I got my Master of Divinity. One, one great guy, I remember his name was Tim. And we laughed and we were in classes together and we hung out and did coffee together, you know, and all that. And, you know, we, we actually, we, um, we formed a basketball team because a lot of these guys who came to our Masters out at where I was studying, some of them played on some big top 10 university teams, Clemson, UCLA, 
And all of a sudden I realized we could make a basketball team. So we actually got into what was called the Tier 1 at the University of British Columbia. And Tim and I said, we're going to put together the, the best basketball team I ever dreamed of being on. And, and it was, what was really wild was Tim and I got kicked off the team because we weren't good enough. We, we, we were the coaches, and they kicked us off. We embarrassed them. But you know what? That strengthened our friendship. You see, we had a common memory together. Um, so, so, but, but then you know what? Um, we both graduated. Um, he got married. I was married. I went, he went to Ontario. I came back to Atlantic Canada, to the best city in all of Canada. And that, and that, <laughs> and that was 20, that was almost 27 years ago. And you know what? I remember... Tim and I, we drifted. We, we communicated for a while, and then we drifted. And actually, I found him on Facebook again. And so we're sort of renewing our acquaintances again. But, but we don't have that friendship anymore. We're two totally different people. Actually, I'm old, I've, I've been here longer. We've drifted longer, 27 years, than when I met him, because I was like 23, 24. So like, oh, that's really depressing. Anyway, um, so that's wrong one, drift. And, and another thing that happens with drift, right, is people just get get distracted. We get busy. We mean to pay attention. We mean to stay connected, but we're just too busy. You've got kids. We've got games. We've got studies. We've got music. We've got life. We've got responsibilities. We've got work. We're going up the scale. And, and those friendships that we wanted to keep, we just uh, drift. That's, but, but it happens. And, and, and sometimes when we start thinking about that, and I hope that you're feeling this a little bit, you start going like, wow, you're right. I lost some friends along the way. But, the sec- but when you go up further up this uh, liability ladder of friendship, there is those times, too, where you get disappointed. Um, and here, here's where we get disappointed. People we invest in as friends simply don't meet our expectations. You know, we, we, say, we call them up to say, let's go out for coffee, and they never call us up. And you go, what's that? We send them Christmas cards. They never send us a Christmas card. I mean, what's that? And so we get disappointed. Maybe it doesn't destroy the friendship, but it causes us to feel uneasy. Ah, but let's keep going up that ladder. But then we get discouraged. Where people that we thought as friends now say something unkind to us. Something that, an undeserved criticism. Something that causes pain and disillusionment in that friendship. And we go, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you did that. And your friendship really takes you know, it, it, it takes a fracture, right? It just, ah. But then, let's be honest, the very worst kind, and, and again, maybe if you're young, you haven't experienced this yet. Maybe you have. But I'm almost looking at anyone who's 35 years and older here, probably right now have a story they could tell where they say, but here's the worst place to be up this liability ladder is when a friend disowns you when they betray you. When someone you thought was trustworthy, next thing you know, you've got a knife in your back. Maybe that friend was related to you at work. Maybe that friend was here in your church. 
Maybe that friend was someone that you had gone to school with. But they just didn't drift from you. They disowned you. They did the Judas kiss on you. Right? They betrayed you. And those are the friends that you remove their pictures from your photo album. Those are the friends that you take away all the Christmas cards that they did send and get rid of them because they are now former friends. And when you reflect on that, the pain is deep and you go, I thought I could trust you. And here's the tough thing is, right? There will be people who will disown you, who will betray you, who will break your heart, right? And you know what happens at that moment? We say, never going to climb that ladder again. And notice this, the higher up you go up the ladder, when you fall, it hurts more. The damage is longer. If you just fall off the first rung, huh, just a little twist of the ankle. Fall off the top one, it might break your neck. So there's the risk of friendships, right? So what do we do? Well, the, the, the danger is this. If you've been hurt enough in some of your friendships, the danger is that you may try to fool yourself or rationalize in your mind that you don't need friendship. You don't need friendship. And yet I would contend with you that the Bible doesn't teach us that. In fact, if anything, the Bible shows us the value of friendship. And I want to uh, unpack that in just three quick ways for you right now. First of all, I want to take the Old Testament. And I want to tell you about David's friend, King David. One of the most powerful and glorious examples of how God worked through someone's life and also brokenness and everything. And David was both a type of Christ and an anti-type of Christ. But, but David takes up some big space in the Old Testament. And it says here that as David was coming to the end of his life, um, there's a list in 1 Chronicles chapter 27 where the officials of David's kingdom are listed. Now, now think about this. It, it, just imagine if, if you were in that inner circle where your name gets listed, you know, under King David here. I, it's an impressive list. Now, you may say, well, I don't know any of these people now, but, but to make this list would be impressive. And so, of course, it's all listed. It's, there's, in, in fact, I'm not great at my Hebrew here. I know that there's certain very talented people in Hebrew here tonight that would say, well, here, here's how you say that properly. But, but the point is, all these names include people like um, Asmapheth, who was in charge of the palace treasuries. Um, Ezra was in charge of the field workers who worked the king's lands. Um, and it keeps going down and going down. And there was Obil, who was in charge of the camels. Apparently, they had a lot of camels. Charge of the, and then there was Jehedi, who was in charge of the donkeys. And Jazith was in charge of the king's flocks and sheep and goats. And, and now, and, 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 and here's something, right? And have you ever seen this happen? When people are listing a list of important people in their life, when you get to the last names, you're getting to the most important names. It's called end stress. You don't start with the most important people at the beginning. You, you wait to the end because you go, I want to thank so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, but I really want to thank, right? So listen to this list. It gets down along here. It goes, Jonathan, David's uncle, was a wise counselor to the king. And then it also said Ahithophel was a royal advisor. And then in this list... There's two more names to go. Hushai, the archite, was the king's friend. That's all he's listed as. 
was the king's friend. And then the last one was Joab was the commander of the king's army. So, so the last two was here's the, the, in essence, the most powerful man running the army, Joab. And here is Hushai, the king's friend. And, and it's amazing when you read about this story about Hushai. Because Hushai was a friend when, it, when David was in his darkest days. David had a son, Absalom, who betrayed him, who tried to take over the kingdom. And uh, um, so David had to flee uh, Jerusalem and had to flee with the people who were still loyal to him. And, and in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, you pick up the story. Um, it says that they came out and Hushai was there to meet David, King David. And it said actually he, he had ashes on his head and he rended his clothing because of the terrible thing here that happened. I mean, there was a revolt uh, in, in, right in, in, in David's family. His own son was betraying him. And Hushai said, you know, I'll go with you. And, and David says, no, don't go with you. Don't go, don't go with me. He said, go and work for my son Absalom as an advisor. Because notice here that the other advisor to King David was Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Quite a, quite a name. Um, but he said, I want you to go and frustrate that advisor for me. And so it's interesting. So Hushai risks his life, and he goes right in, right in a sense, goes right into the cave with a lion. And he's sitting there along with all these other people around Absalom, who has betrayed his father, wanted to kill his father, wanted to take over the kingdom, the whole nine yards. And, and there's Hushai sitting there. And uh, Absalom goes, aren't you David's friend? And Hushai goes, I was the king's advisor, and now you're the king, so I'm your advisor. And so it began. And Absalom says, well, what should we do? And, Hith and, and Ahithophel had a great strategy, actually. It would have taken King David out. And, and uh, Hushai gives counter advice. And Absalom says, I want to go with Hushai's advice. And actually, the advisor, Ahithophel, said, this is it. Goes, does his affairs, goes home and hangs himself because he knows they're going to lose. And, and, and Hushai helped David regain his kingdom at the darkest hour. And so when, when the list was being made at the end of David's life, it, there was a list, Hushai, the king's friend. Now, now, the question is this. David saw the value of friendship. The Bible is a great story here about the value of friendship. And we have to ask ourselves, do we have a Hushai in our life? You know, there's another part of the Bible, though, that I think really illustrates the importance of friendship. You just go to the Gospels. Um, in John 15, 15, Jesus has his disciples. And listen to what he says here in John 15, 15. He says, um, I no longer call you slaves because a master does not confide in his slaves. Now catch this. Now you are my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. You know, I, I, I love when you read the Gospels about Jesus. You know, he just didn't sit there and kind of wait for people to come to him. He went out and he made friends. He, he said to Peter, you know, get rid of your nets. Come follow me. And in that process of, of those young men following Jesus, those, those 12 disciples, Jesus offered them friendship. He served them. He, he poured his life into them. He taught them. He wanted them to become the best they could be in light of God's kingdom work. 
And he did that even with one who would betray him. He showed friendship to all of them, including Judas. And it's amazing when you look at the fact that Jesus had friends. That tells me maybe we should have friends. Um, you know, when I look at how Jesus demonstrated his friendship, he actively sought people out. He showed them acceptance. He helped them to grow into what God wanted them to be. He spoke truth. He served them. I mean, if, if you were to read the Gospels and just say, how does Jesus show friendship? That should become a model for you how to show friendship. But, you get, but I want to take even further. I think where the Bible really teaches us about the importance of friendship is found in the very gospel itself. Um, in Romans chapter 5, listen to these words. It says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now, catch this. That is the work of Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. This, this work of Christ, right? where Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But now, see the outcome of this. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And then he goes on to say, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us, and catch this, friends of God. The gospel is about friendship with God. Don't tell me you don't need friends. Because the ultimate existence of our life, rooted in our relationship with Christ, is that we are now friends with God. And the Bible calls us to be imitators of God. And so therefore, if God sought to be friends with us, we need to imitate God and seek to be friends with others. I hope you also responded that way too, Brentwood Campus. This is not optional. This isn't for people who've got time or who are bored or retired or are just in grade seven and want a BFF. This is for everybody. This is the call of the gospel. We are called to be friends with God because of Christ, and we are called, therefore, to imitate God and to extend that same type of gospel friendship to others. Now, in the time that's remaining, how do we do that? How do we do that? If I had to sum up how to make friends, you know, it's amazing. The older people get, the more confusing this gets. It really is. It's amazing. And I, I, I tongue-in-cheek want to say, if you want to learn how to make friends, go, go to an elementary school, go out on a recess, and watch kids develop friendships. But, but I want to leave you with this one big idea and then, and then work it out in three ways with you. If you want to develop friendships, now listen carefully, you have to take initiative. Okay? I, I, actually, I want everyone to say that with me. If you want to have friendships, you have to take initiative. Let, let's say it again. Take initiative. One more time. Take initiative. Now, now, now take initiative. What does that mean? let's pretend there's a plant sitting right here. I, I, I should have had a real plant, but let's just pretend 
There's a table, and then on this table is a bowl with dirt in it, and a nice plant. I don't know what kind of plant. What kind of plant? How about this kind? How about, but these are fake. There's a, there, there, there's a lesson in that. We have fake friendships. But a real plant. Yeah, look behind me. But, so here's the thing. Now, now, if all I do is look at that plant every day and say, that's a nice plant. But what is the one thing I need to do to keep that plant alive? I, okay, I have to water. Do I just say, I hope it gets watered? No. Uh, I hope somebody else waters it. Oh, my goodness. Okay, Brentwood Campus, just stay with me here for a sec. Okay, here we go. Um, this is a real plant. So, so if, I'm going to, if I'm going to have this nice, enjoyable ivy plant in my life, I have to do one basic thing. I'm sure for those of you who are more green thumbs than me, you might have other suggestions about turning up the soil and not letting it get too overweeded, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. The fundamental thing you do is you water it. And that means you take the initiative, you get up out of your seat, you walk to the faucet, you turn on the tap, you come back, and you water it. And you do, you do that on a regular basis. That's called taking initiative. Don't water the plant. What happens? It dies. It withers. And it doesn't die right away, right? In fact... The soil gets dry first and still looking pretty good. And then some of the leaves start to get a little less than green. Things are still okay. See, you don't have to water for a long time. But then all of a sudden, one day, it just goes bleh. And we wonder, what happened to that friendship? Because we didn't take the initiative. You know, it's funny, isn't it? How some people say, I, I just don't, I don't have a green thumb. And I say, you don't know how to water a plant? And some people say, I don't know how to make friends. And I go, you don't know how to pick up a phone? You don't know how to stop by and say, hey, I got a coffee? You don't know how to show up? Right? It's called taking the initiative. Now, here's the problem. And here's the, um, the, um, the thing, though. So think about this, taking the initiative. We see this triangle. But you've got to take initiative in three critical ways. And I want to deal with the biggest one, which is the hardest one. The biggest initiative you've got to take with people to make friends is you've got to trust them. And I know what some of you are saying, because you're righteousness-based, not grace-based. You're saying they've got to earn my trust. That's called righteousness-based friendship, which basically will kill the plant every time. You have to give trust before people can earn it. You always have to give it first, kind of like God didn't trust us, you know? I mean, he could have said, well, I don't trust these people. I'm not going to send the son to die for them. While we were still sinners, while we were still untrustworthy, Christ died for us so that we could become friends with God. God took the initiative. We take the initiative. We have to be willing to trust. Now, let me explain one thing here about trust really quick. Trust is the catalyst of friendship and you have to understand something. I cannot receive um, your acceptance if I fear trusting you. You may have all the acceptance in the world that you want to give me as a friend, but if I don't trust you, I can't receive it. 
And I know that there's people whose relationships have been broken, they've been abused, there's been mistreatment, they've been stabbed in the back, they've climbed up that ladder, they have fallen down, they go, I can't do it anymore. But listen, if you can't give trust, you will not have friendships. Listen, the degree to which I can trust you is the degree that you can meet my needs as a friend. If I trust you, if I just give you a little bit of a trust, you're going to meet itty-bitty needs of my life. What are some of the needs we have as friends in each other? Love, acceptance, creativity, truth. Those are deep needs, and I need friends to get those needs met. You've got to be willing to give trust to other people. Um, here's the second place that you need to take initiative. You have to take time. You have to take time. And there's so many different ways I can talk about this. Um, you know, but, but I, I want to... I, I want to just explain this in one way. There's, again, there's a thousand different ways we can think about how to take time, right? You know, you got to honestly take time to listen. You've got to actually take time out of your schedule. You've got to take time to make memories, right? I, you, you know, like what's really, I mean, it's funny. Um, uh, uh, Dwight and Deanne Perry are good friends. They've been journeying with us for almost the whole time we've been here. And we've developed a good friendship with them within the life of this church. One of the memories we made, we went, Dwight and I came up with this crazy scavenger hunt idea about a date we did once with our wives, Nancy and Deanne. And uh, it was a crazy thing. And, and that happened like, I think, 20 years ago. And we still talk about it because we took time to make a memory. Okay? Those are ways to take time. But I want to I talk about one way that you need to take the initiative by taking time with friends. And that is, um, you need to take time to give encouragement to your friends. And I want to read a quick little story here about someone who expressed friendship to someone because they took time. Uh, listen, listen to this. Um, looking back on, the renowned, on his renowned career that began with his debut at the age of eight with the Budapest Philharmonic, concert pianist Ander Folds knows the power of encouragement. And he writes... At 16, I was in the midst of a personal crisis arising from differences with my music teacher. Then the renowned pianist Emil von Sayer, uh, Litz's last surviving pupil, Franz Litz's last surviving pupil, it's pretty impressive, came to Budapest and asked me to play for him. He listened intently to Bach's Toccata in C major and requested more. I put all my heart into playing Beethoven's uh, a pathetic sonata and continued with Schumann's Papillons. Finally, Van Sora rose and he kissed me on the forehead. My son, he said, when I was your age, I became a student of Litz. He kissed me on the forehead after my first lesson, saying, take good care of this kiss. It comes from Beethoven, who gave it to me after hearing me play my first time. I've waited for years to pass on this sacred heritage, but now I feel you deserve it. And then Andor Fold says this, Nothing in my life has meant as much to me as von Sarr's kiss. Beethoven's kiss miraculously lifted me out of my crisis and helped me become the pianist I am today. And soon I, in turn, will pass it on to the one who deserves it as well. And it all began because someone took the time to give that type of encouragement. It takes time. And, and the other place you need to take initiative if you're going to be a friend is you've got to be transparent. 
And I'm just going to go back to what I preached in my marriage sermon, but this applies now beyond marriage. It applies to every relationship for friendships. Relationships grow deep when people get real. What has to be the, the, the pillars of a friendship is both truth and acceptance or grace. Truth and grace. Those are the two things. You need to be able to speak truth and still show unconditional acceptance to your friend. Those need to be the anchor points. That's where transparency happens. You can't be fake with a friend. Relationships grow deep when people get real, when friendships get real. Well, with the time remaining, I was thinking, how do I end this up? All about friendship. I mean, it's rooted in the very gospel of Christ. And yet, I keep thinking that the best way to end, I thought, I gotta, I gotta find an example that just shows what, what friendship looks like. So, so think about all the points we've made about friendship, the dangers of it. Think about how it's rooted in the gospel. It was seen in the, in the, in the, in the king's life of David. But think, too, about how friendship is about taking initiative where you are willing to trust, where you are willing to give time, and where you are willing to be transparent. Now listen to this story. Ruth Peterson was a busy woman in her early 40s with a challenging life and an, a, a very sick mother. Ruth used to drive three miles to the beach trying to walk off the pressure cares of life whenever her world began to close in on her. One day, she met a sweet little six-year-old girl with honey blonde eyes and eyes as blue, I mean hair, and eyes as blue as the sea, building a sandcastle on the beach. The little girl greeted her, and just then a sandpiper glided by. That's a joy, said the child. It's a what, asked Mrs. Peterson. It's a joy. My mama says sandpipers come to bring us joy. Fine, said the depressed Mrs. Peterson. The bird went off down the beach. Goodbye, joy, she muttered. Hello, pain. What's your name, the little girl asked. I'm Ruth Peterson. Great, my name's Wendy. As Ruth left the beach, Wendy called out, Come again, Mrs. P. We'll have another happy day. The days and weeks that followed were even more dark-hearted for Ruth, and she found herself walking the beach again. The child she'd forgotten about suddenly appeared. Hello, Mrs. P. Do you want to play? Well, let's just walk, Ruth said. Where do you live? Oh, over there, pointed Wendy. She pointed to a row of summer cottages, which Mrs. Peterson thought strange since this was midwinter. Where do you go to school, Ruth asked. I don't go to school. Mommy says we're on a big vacation. And when Ruth left that for home that day, Wendy said it had been a happy day. Feeling surprisingly better, Ruth smiled at her and had to agree. Three weeks later, Ruth rushed to the beach in a state of near panic. She was in no mood to greet Wendy when she saw the girl. If you don't mind, she said sternly, I'd rather be alone today. Why, asked Wendy. Ruth turned quickly on her and shouted, because my mother died, all right? She then caught herself and thought, why am I telling this to a little child? Oh, Wendy said quietly, then this is a bad day. Yes, and yesterday and the day before, and oh, please, just go away. Did it hurt? Wendy inquired. Did what hurt, the exasperated woman replied, when she died? Of course it hurt, Ruth snapped. She excused herself and walked swiftly away from the little girl. A month or so later, Ruth decided to visit the beach again, and Wendy wasn't there. And feeling a little guilty and ashamed, she admitted to herself she actually missed Wendy. She decided to walk up to the cottage after her walk. 
She knocked on several doors until one opened by a young woman with honey-colored hair. Hello, I'm Ruth Peterson. I missed your little girl today. Oh, yes, Mrs. Peterson, please come in. Wendy spoke of you so much, I'm afraid I allowed her to bother you. If she was a nuisance, please accept my apologies. No, not at all. She's a delightful child, Ruth said, suddenly realizing that she really meant it. Where is she? Wendy died last week, Mrs. Peterson. She had leukemia. Maybe she didn't tell you. Struck silent. Ruth groped for a chair and caught her breath. Wendy left something for you, Mrs. Peterson. If I can only find it, could you wait for a moment while I look? In a few moments, she handed Ruth a smeared envelope with Mrs. P printed in bold, childlike letters. And inside was a drawing in bright crown hues, a yellow beach, a blue sky, and a brown bird. And underneath was printed carefully, a sandpiper to bring you joy. Tears filled Mrs. Peterson's eyes. And a heart that almost forgotten how to love or trust opened up. She took Wendy's mom in her arms and muttered, I'm so sorry, I am so sorry, and they wept together. The precious picture of the sandpiper is framed now and hangs in Mrs. Peters, Mrs. Peterson's study. A gift from a child with sea blue eyes and the hair color of sand who gave a heartened, frightened adult the powerful gift of trust and love and joy. The gospel of Christ calls us to pursue friendships like that. Um, we are all angels with only one wing, and we can only fly while embracing each other. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we close this series on close calls. And Lord, help us to see your call in what we call friendships. Help us, Lord, to take the initiative, to show trust, to take time, to be transparent. And we do it because that's what the gospel is all about. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to turn this now back over to the leadership at the Brentwood campus.